Welcome to my Dream Log Cabin podcast, where we help cabin lovers like you navigate the uncharted waters of building their dream log home. From idea to move-in, we cover all aspects of log home design and construction. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to hit that subscribe button. This podcast is sponsored by Caribou Creek Handcrafted Log Homes. Hey guys, I know last week I told you that we were wrapping up this mini-series on design, but I had the honor of getting Lynn Fleming on the podcast. I talked about her in last week's episode and mentioned a blog that we had done together before we started this podcast. Uh, I just had to reach out to her and say, hey, would you do this with me? And so gratefully, she was able to jump on and we could do this podcast episode for you. So I hope you love it. Uh, really quick, I want to give you a little background on Lynn. So she is the owner of Exact Interiors out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Her passion for architecture began when she was just a young girl. And then she completed architecture school and realized that she really wasn't into dealing with the red tape that's involved at that level. So she followed her heart into design where she enjoys watching projects unfold. Lynn got her foundation for design working in commercial companies such as Canadian Hotel Chains, Marie Calendars, and also Marriott Destination Spots. One of her many notable projects was the Essex House in New York. Later, she moved to Hollywood and designed many homes for celebrities and artists. After becoming a mother, she was called to relocate to beautiful North Idaho, where she can work with clients around the world. She is well-versed in log home designs and actually is helping us, or has been helping us, I should say, with a project we're doing out in Troy. Uh, So we're so grateful to have her here with us today. And uh, let's dive in and listen to what Lynn has to say for us on design and interior design of log homes. Oh, and really quick, before we get too deep into this interview, I just want to remind you, if you're just tuning in, we are running a contest so that you can receive a free copy of the Ultimate Log Home Planning Guide. which It's a planning guide that's designed to help you dream, plan, strategize, build your team, build your budget, everything you need to build your log home from start to finish. Uh, You can read more about it at cariboucreek.com in the top right corner. And I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes below. But we are giving away a free copy. If you head over to iTunes right now, this is how you can win. Head over to iTunes, leave a review, a written review, screenshot that review, and then tag us on Instagram at cariboucreek and you will be entered to win. Uh, We're going to do this drawing on August 13th. So definitely be sure to get entered into uh, our drawing here. Okay, that's enough of that. So let's do this interview. But I would love for you to just kind of tell us your bio, a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are, and then we'll dive in with, with some of those questions. Okay. All right. That's good. I studied architecture and then I decided that a lot of architects things do not get built. So I decided to focus on interior architecture and design. And uh, I usually start at the beginning of a project and I see it all the way through right to the last, you know, door handle and uh, piece of uh, art. And so I like the joy of seeing the whole start to finish of a project. So that's what drew me into it. I was focused in Canada primarily on um, hotels. We did, I handled almost all the hoteliers across Canada with a large architectural firm and uh, worked as a team. I love working with teams. And then Marriott decided to relocate me from Vancouver, Canada to Washington, D.C. to head up their interior design architecture site. And so I started my life in Washington, D.C. almost 30 years ago doing hotels for them worldwide. And uh, that's, I've always kept my finger in hospitality because it gives you the freedom 
uh, of creativity. Again, I like to not have a lot of constraints. Now being in Idaho, it was a retirement kind of thing. Um, I focus on residential design because that is sort of, I call a hotel a large home or a home a large hotel. They all have things to do with heads, beds, and food. So I really enjoy the work. My hard part is I had to kind of give up the side that is me totally out there creatively. And I have to wrap myself around the client. The goal is to make them happy. It's not about me. So I have to lose my ego and just go for what they are wanting. And I try to give them a view that this has to look better than just the trends. I'm trying to move away from trendy. I don't want trendy because I'd hate walking in and seeing something that was built, you know, last year and looks purely last year. So that's my goal is uh, I usually do what people would call hundred year houses, houses that will look the same for a hundred years because they have the integrity, they have the honesty, they have beautiful materials done beautifully by great craftsmen. So that's really what I do and why I do it is I have a passion for what I do. I love to draw, which is kind of counterintuitive now with CAD and you know electronic things. But most people pay me to draw beautifully. And so I'll do custom handrails and custom staircases and custom lighting, um, huge scale fixtures. So uh, I have a CAD guy. He does the CAD, but I like the more artistic side of it. So, so that's why I'm on this. Yeah. That is so awesome because, you know, our one of our newer designers also has an affinity for drawing and just blew me away with his artisticness. So I can appreciate exactly what you're saying. It's definitely an art and a skill that is still relevant, even though, you know, we've amassed technology to help us make things more efficient. It doesn't always make it more custom. (laughs) Correct. Absolutely. And I've seen a lot of architects who've returned to hand drawing, having learned all the tricks in the trade in CAD. But they go back to it and realize, you know what, I got to get deeper into the design. And the way I do it is by, and for me, it's that actual process of using my pencil and applying my creative creativity. I think the CAD removes you from that investment in that end product. I really feel like I'm crafting that piece of furniture, crafting that light fixture. It's just, it's how to, you think about how it goes together rather than just putting on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a leap forward that we shouldn't forget about. So it's, to me, it's valuable being able to hand sketch in front of a client is really helpful. Um, and say, Oh, you think you want to do it this way, or do you want to do it this way? And they can see it immediately rather than waiting a while for kind of sketch up and how you do that. And the mechanical part of it. it's more spontaneous. Absolutely. You know, Lynn, we are just wrapped up a mini series on design, uh, basically talking about floor plan design and kind of layout Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So I love our timing of this interview because I think it's really pulling everything together. And what's so important, and I want to really impress this upon people, is why it's so important to work with an interior designer early on. So if you could tell me some of the benefits to working with an interior designer, especially pertaining to log homes, kind of what what can that do and how can that influence the end result by starting early? Uh, that is my mantra. Please show it to me before it becomes reality. Um, show it on paper. Get it. Get out the bugs on paper because paper's cheap. Logs are not cheap. Uh, redoing or reshaping a, a, a framed space is not cheap. 
So it's much easier to ball it up and throw it away on paper, on CAD, on the screen, um, and be able to go through it all. And what I struggle with is a lot of people, clientele, don't understand scale. And so they think they can shrink stuff down till it's the bare bones. And I'm going, but think about you're standing in a shower and you got a 30 inch wide shower, try to lift your elbows and wash your hair. You know, those kind of elements that I walk them through and say, "Mm, you know, the door is too small. Oh, but I can fit through it. Yeah. But what about when you're in a walker or maybe you have a wheelchair, maybe you break your leg and you got crutches. So we have to go through that with them as an exercise to test uh, spaces. And I think that the discrimination of an interior designer versus an interior decorator, and it's not a versus thing, it's a reality. Interior decorators apply materials onto a fixed element that's already a given and stick their furniture into that space as a given. But I think an interior designer has to go deeper and say, how can I improve this on in basic form before we ever implement that structure? So we're, we should be testing furniture, making sure the lighting's adequate, uh, making sure that if you have disabilities like sight, sound, uh, you know, acoustics, all those things are brought into consideration as you're doing it. Um, you know, when I start to talk about hard surfaces, people, go, oh, yeah, I'm going to have stone this and stone that. And I'm going and don't ever try to play a musical instrument here because it's going to sound like a tin can. <laughs> so, you know, you you try to think ahead of of the solution and try to get everyone aligned toward that one goal of perfection. Um, We'll never get perfect, we never do, but at least we can avoid the too small bathroom, the too big closet, the unworkable kitchen that means you have to walk a whole lot further to create the same meal that could be done in a smaller space and efficiency. So there's so many things that go into flow and yes, it looks great when you have just a floor plan, but then you start to stick furniture and you go, oh wow, this is gonna fit, that's not gonna fit. Oh, I can't see the TV from there. Oh, I have to put the sofa back up to the fireplace. You know, those kind of ludicrous solutions that evolve when a plan isn't tested. So it's better to test it in paper and make sure that it works dimensionally, vertically, all that stuff and how it all feels um, before you embark in, in the actual build. So. I agree 100%. You just validated so much of the conversation I've been having over the last month or so with with the <laughs> design and thinking and whatnot. And I love the idea that you have so much experience and versatility with this to where you've worked with other clients, you you've seen problems, you've worked through them, mm-hmm. you've also seen problems you've had to fix that, you know, were not thought through clearly ahead of time. So yeah, how users. do people look for, like, what kind of certification um, or is there any mm. sort of organization that people could search for uh, interior designers? And for example, like you mentioned, there's a difference between designers and decorators. decorators. Um, mm-hmm. How would they know the difference and, and that kind of thing? Like if they okay. got it from somebody doing some research side of it. That's easy. Okay. Uh, that goes back to, do they have a Bachelor of Interior Design? or a certificate of interior design that qualifies them and proves that they've done a certain number of years of study and uh, application. The other thing is the main one to look for is what's called its acronym CIDQ, Certificate of Interior Design Qualifications. That is not a rigid standard in Idaho because Idaho does not recognize interior designers as an entity. They do not certify interior designers. Now, if you move about the nation, about 45 states out of the out of the union have professional interior design statutes. 
And so you can actually, and I'm certified in Texas, California, Washington, D.C., Maryland, uh, wherever I've been, I get certified and make sure that my CIDQ certificate allows me my professional status. And so if you're in certain states, you know, Oregon, Washington, um, Montana, bunch of them are recognized with as interior designers with a professional status. And you have to prove through time, through education, and through a tough two-day exam. It's, it's not easy. You get into structural, you get into uh, light and color and uh, lumens and technical stuff, as well as drawing something. So the CIDQ is the best standard. And then if you go state by state, it would be of the state. We should know our codes, just like an architect knows his codes. I know most of the architectural codes. I don't know all the engineering codes, but I have a, a gist of where I'm overstepping my boundaries. Right. And I think that's more interior decorators who are not trained or not certified, just kind of call themselves that, or they call themselves interior designers, but they don't know what they don't know. They don't have a depth of experience. They, they aren't aware like, well, you know what? I probably should get an architect or an engineer on that staircase design because there are codes related to that. So, um, so yeah, that would be a good start. And also, did they go to school? And what kind of school did they go to? What kind of education did they get? And how many years have they actually been practicing? There's always the Better Business Bureau, but we have to pay for that prop, you know, for that pleasure of being rated by them. So, you know, not everyone's on that. Yeah. Um, ASID is good. The S American Society of Interior Designers is good. Um, and then there's a, another design firm and I'm just blanking out, but ASID is a good, good situation. But again, Idaho doesn't have any of that because there's too, we're too small a number. Mm -hmm. We're just too small in numbers. So it's a so challenge. Now how, how, uh, I mean, I suppose they could also ask for referrals or previous customers and kind of get a feel for that. Now, um, I understand that there are levels of expense, you know, obviously you with your experience are going to be on a higher end, uh, working in some of the larger projects, but on a whole, um, just thinking about it from a consumer perspective, and maybe they want a nice home. Like, for example, I'll give you a little story. My dad, he was a flooring contractor. He did fairly well for himself. He wasn't, uh, you know, wealthy by any means, but he, he was moderately wealthy, right? This middle class, upper middle class. He had mm -hmm. hired an interior uh, designer to come in when he remodeled his home. Like he, mm -hmm. he got in this 1970 home. Mm -hmm. And and what was really cool is I love what you said earlier about having this hundred year home because everything flowed. The fabric from the bedroom flowed into the living room. The kitchen countertops matched. I mean, the entire mm -hmm. house, it just was a package. It was beautifully done and mm -hmm. it fit his style and personality. But what was interesting is obviously, you know, he needed something at a different level. So could you give us kind of just a, I don't know, maybe a high level view of what to expect an interior designer to cost from maybe a mid-level all the way up to a high level. Okay. Um, mid-level. And if it's just, if they were focusing on just like bathrooms and kitchen, I think, you know, around three to $4,000 in fees. Um, and then when they jump into a whole house renovation, whether it's interior, exterior finishes all the way through, maybe getting into the furniture, purchasing and buying, but that's a whole nother thing we'll talk about. Um, you know, up to $10,000 if it's a like 3,500, 4,500 square foot home. Um, usually when you're talking about my hard part is when you're doing these high end custom homes, I sort of base it on annual, how much money, because if you're starting in year one and you're spanning all the way up to year five on some of these things, um, you know, I can expect about $1,000 a month, depending. 
but it comes in bits and spurts. So overall on the whole build of a, I just finished a $25 million job. I'm guessing I bailed out close to 35,000, but that's insane. Cause yeah, this thing went it's, on it's forever. Within, it's, within it's all the parameters of, you know, the percentages. Yeah. Yeah. And also if you look at the valuation of the house and if you're putting in a certain amount, you can usually back it out and say, if you're spending a hundred thousand, you know, you can expect maximum $10,000 of material design services. Max. Great. So, okay. You know, that's the most. And I, and if I can do, if you can do quick and get easy, quick solutions of paint and color, and it really changes the whole venue, you know, you're talking a thousand to $2,000 at the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it really, and if they're so cost driven, that's the other thing I try to feel out. If they're budget driven, then I really try to do a budget quick, solution get it moving get it done fast because the longer you drag it out the more it costs Mm -hmm. so you know if you can get it turned around and sometimes i'll pick up those little jobs for a day or two and just go let's get this thing moving let's get it out of here and here's a simple bill for five hundred dollars that's you know that's the ideal situation yeah so good okay so let's talk logs because you know this is what I I actually mentioned you by the way in the previous episode I kind of talked about our blog I've dropped people there but I thought man it would just be so cool to get you on the podcast and have this conversation to where people can listen to it because I think that's how a lot of people are receiving content these days so mm-hmm. um so I wanted to talk about logs specifically and why interior designer could be so much more instrumental in a log home even more so in some cases than a traditionally framed home and so if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that logs present and, and how to move through those, maybe. Okay. Well, logs are, are the epitome of a hundred year home. I, you know, they are the absolute cornerstone of a hundred year home. Uh, timber frame and log, we've invested a whole lot on that material and you are not going to be ripping it apart anytime soon. Unlike, you know, simple two by fours, drywall, you can knock it down, change it as long as it's not structural. And even then you can pay attention to that and remediate that. But where logs are so integral to both the interior and the exterior, um, they are uh, certainly a hundred year home and beyond. Um, You know, there's there's antique log homes out there in Pennsylvania and, um, you know, deep south where they've been there for upwards of 250 years. So you, in particular, Caribou Creek, are building something that is not transitional. It's not trendy. It's beyond trends. It's of itself. So for the log home person who's in, intrigued by it, it is of itself a whole venue in, in and of itself. What I find, the logs have such a strong, bold statement and are so muscular that everything has to be looked at in perspective. And I look at, I don't think any man-made fake stone looks good in it. I have a hard time looking at quartz plunked into what is an organic of the earth product, which is a log home. So I'm always looking for granites and, and quartzite and marbles and things that are real and slate that sit well against a real material. So um, even handcrafted metals look so much better than that very manufactured look. It feels more organic. And I think that the basis of log is organic mm-hmm. and, um, and fighting that, or you can kind of play with it a little bit on lighting maybe, but even so, when it's so manufactured looking, it stands out as not fitting in. So it's more about context. And I, I think it makes it easier to do a log home in that you've, 
kind of cut out all that other stuff that that is superfluous. You get down to the core things that are organic, that are man-made, that are crafted, um, that are unique, um, because every log is unique. Every bit that goes into it should be unique, um, even down to the furniture. I love doing the organic uh, live edge furniture or using the ends of logs as part of a bookcase or something is setting it apart. Um, and then you can slap in some really amazing crafted uh, glass or metal against that. And even glass again is an organic material and used properly can have some beautiful edging to it and texture to it. And um, so there are ways to introduce newer materials into the log home and set it apart. Um, so I've even done log homes in far in the Middle East. We did um, timber frame and thatch roof in in Middle East um, just because we could get logs out of South Africa and it was pretty awesome stuff and it was wow. termite proof. So yeah, <laughs> that's a cool little side story. <laughs> yeah, thatch roofs. Let's see how thatch roofs work up here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I hear a lot from women's perspective specifically, geez, Lou, um, um, when it comes to logs is two, two primary things. And maybe you can touch on this. One is they say, oh, I don't want to clean it. It's a lot of cleaning, right? So we, we can offer the dovetail. So it's a flat wall that hanging the pictures and whatnot is another one that comes up. But one that I get a lot of is there's so much wood. It's the TNG mm. roof. It's the log walls. It's the beams everywhere you look, even, even in my own home, when I moved in, that was my first thought because it's the same way. They even have knotty pine cabinets. I'm like, holy mokes, you know, this is just so much brown everywhere. So right. what kind of things do you do to soften that or maybe to kind of give some contrast? Well, I, I, and I think that that's where log homes can be switched up is you, now that we have those large format tiles and porcelain tiles that look so real, real stone look, you can do the large format porcelain tiles on the floor, put in some and heat, heat the floors. So they're all warm and cozy. So you're not adding more wood again, um, as a contrast. I've done cork floors, which are again, very warm and you can get different colors of cork. Um, and now we're doing, uh, you know, you can do some rugs, do some area rugs and yes, you could do wall to wall, but it just doesn't feel right in log to me. It just doesn't have the permanency. Um, and you can always switch it up with area rugs and change the feel. The wall, as far as hanging art, you can always hang art. There's J rails. There's ways to hang art and cover up some of that log and give it an amazing um, elevation against the log. So more to do with that art is scale. You need big sized pieces to handle against the big logs. Um, and yes, I would look at uh, alternatives on the cabinetry because I think you could have some wood, but I would also break it up with some painted just because you're so browned or golden out um, that you could put the upper cabinets in the light where your eye is usually getting the light whitewashed or reclaimed or something different that's not more of the same brown gold tones. Um, and then lighting is really, really critical against the logs and focusing on what you wanna see and what you wanna just ignore. So um, to warm it up, Cleaning is always fun. I had a beautiful tamarack log vintage home and uh, on the lake in Hayden Lake. And I just had a really long vacuum hose because I didn't like the dust that sat on the top of the logs. Um, and yes, you can do the square cut and they're beautiful. I think the square cut's one of the prettiest of all uh, because you don't get that dust line on top of that log. So um, yeah, I 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the square cut just because having lived in a log home, I was like, hmm, yeah, that's a chore. <laughs> and I would do it once a year. Every time we came in in the spring, I would clean it all off and move right in. So, um, yeah. And air scrubbers, you know, make sure you got, now that we have so many, now that we're officially in smogist in, in Idaho, um, we should be making sure we have really good air filters on, on all of our intake air systems now, especially up where we're in the forests. Um, that's like a first request nowadays with air, air handling is making sure we have really good filtering and uh, fresh air provision. Um, that's, that's a really smart is, idea. Yeah. You know, Lynn, I'll tell you this, you brought up a good point here and, and something I want to highlight is people who are relocating like I did right from Arizona to Idaho. It didn't occur to me what this whole smog, smogist thing, that's the first August would be out. like, yes. you know, when I moved out here, the first summer was beautiful. I mean, there, mm. I remember saying, man, this is just the most amazing. I love it. Someone said, gosh, you know, you're so lucky. We haven't even had any smoke this year. I said, oh, you guys get smoke. I had no idea. And so, you know, sometimes when you're relocating, you visit the spot. It's not what you might expect. So even better yet to hire somebody who's local and who understands the the area and some things that they might want to incorporate into the design early on, because I do not have an air filter system in my house. In fact, I don't even have a circulating air system. Ah, see, yes, that's any fans. I, I, well, I'm just on the brink of sitting with border sheet metal to talk through a major, very complicated house and they have all radiant uh, floor heating, but they need air conditioning and the client is balking at ducting, but I'm going, well, how are we going to get cool air into this area and fresh air on the, on Priest Lake? So you know, today I'll work with borders and try to find a way to fish it discreetly around and make sense out of the ducting that has to occur. That's so awesome. that's, again, what an interior designer can do and be part of. Um, a lot of my architects are long gone when it comes down to this kind of stuff. And knowing that you can move into it swiftly and that some of them don't even know what systems were running in the house. Whereas, again, I'm part and parcel of the current team and I see and I can talk to all the guys on the job on what's being done and make sure that the client gets the best solution and it doesn't sort of go, oh, you had to add a bunch of dug, ugly ducts. I'm going, no, 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 they don't really know it. It just looks like a coffered ceiling. So um, that again, and that's another place is if we need to, to break up some of the logs, to have panels of um, not having the log ceiling per se and not having a wood ceiling per se, but doing drywall to give you a reflectancy of light and give you a break from all the logs. I'm just log on, or timber frame on top of TNG on the ceiling. It's like, wow, could we just pour it on brown? <laughs> I know, right? And more light, brings in more light. If you're living in the year round here, you know as well as I do, the winters are gray. From November to February, when we're all ready to go to Hawaii, we have gray weather from when the light comes up at nine till the light goes down at 3.30. So it's great. And, you know, we got to get some light into these places and make them happy places. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I did mention that in the series talking about lumen output. I know, I know you and mm-hmm. I spoke about it in more detail and something you said that really has stuck with me um, since our last conversation. And I just really like, honestly gives me chills when I think about it is you said something about how you really want to highlight the logs as if they they have their own character and you use lighting. Mm-hmm 
to do that. Oh, it still just gives me chills because I can picture this just gorgeous rustic home, but you don't want to, you want to walk into a log home and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you want to walk into a log home and be overwhelmed by it, but not overwhelmed to the point where you're like, oh my goodness, this is too much wood. How do you mm-hmm. do that with lighting? Well, uh, that's the fun part of lighting. I do a I'm not a fan of can lights and even in non-log, non-timber frame homes. I mean, I don't like a bunch of holes in the ceiling. I try to put light only where you need it, whether it's for ambiance, whether it's for functioning for flow, up a staircase, into a bathroom, a pathway at nighttime to a toilet, um, all those things that can get you from A to B, but also have a light experience. So I also delve into the client if they want to have what I call a, you know, a boasting wall or a a family photo wall. Um, So to make sure that we have unique lighting to hit the the art that we have or the unique piece of sculpture. A lot of, I don't know, a lot of my clients tend to buy bronzes of amazing things. So you want to light that bronze beautifully. Um, So for me, um, we just did a huge staircase as a stone tower, and we had four flights of staircase up the tower. So I created a light fixture that actually cascaded down through the entire four floors. And it's breathtaking. I'll try and send you a picture. We're we're not there yet. We're going to get prevent. But to be able to design that so that it followed all the way down. So your eye travels up the staircase around this light fixture. So some of it is about the engagement of the space and the enhancing, but also it's functional that gives light to that staircase and shoots off amazing reflection on the stone and on the metal and on the wood uh, timber beams. So, um, but I only want to put light where it needs to be. If it's architectural lighting that's locked into the structure, because people do want to have floor lamps. They do want to have table lamps. So that to me is all part and parcel of making that intimate space. And not many people want to flip on a, an overhead light that just washes the whole room with the same amount of light. I think you want to accent the view or not have a lot of light when you're looking outside that you're seeing the outdoors. Um, that on the outside, you're highlighting the architecture as well as giving some functionality, but not invading on our night sky and not making it intrusive that you're sitting outside watching the stars and you can just turn off those lights and enjoy a beautiful view. So it's all about, to me, it's that balance between art and function, but not overdo the function part. We need um, good lighting, like the terminology of 90 CRI, um, making sure that it's clear, natural daylight without being too bright white, not too high, high um, uh, lumens because you can get too much light, you know, 3000 Kelvin is too much light for most people. It's blinding. So you do 3000 or 2,500 somewhere in there, but when you get higher than that, it looks like a hospital. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's again, where we have to input, you know, if you start to look at 3,500, well, we want a lot of light. So they go, okay, let's put 3,500 Kelvins. And before you know it, you're squinting the entire time. So, um, you know, it's putting the light where you need it. Um, putting the light where you want it to become emphasized and exciting. I've often done on the beams is to put LED tape on top of the beam so it washes up into the structure. Mm. And especially if you've got those super high, high vault ceilings where you're way up there. I'm up at 38 feet sometimes, you know, and I want to light illuminate that. So you really show off the beams at night and it becomes very um, exciting. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, there's just so many tools. It really is like a sculpting tool light to me. It's sculpting. You know, we can wash up on a, on a, a mount like you have, wash up from below because God, it's kind of cool having the underside of his chin or you want to wash down onto his antlers. So you want to play with that as well on what it is you're lighting. Um, it's like a paintbrush yeah. for me. Watching you talk about it, even I can, I could just like see how into it you are in your mind. Like you could visualize the light and how mm -hmm. it's reaching and where it's going. It's, and you know mm -hmm. what, that's not something that homeowners are going to be able to imagine. Not only that, yeah. but there are lighting solutions that people don't even know about. Right. You know? And so right. until you get somebody who has the experience and, and can see it in, in the completion, man, could you imagine just walking into your home and just being like, holy cow, this is just beautiful. It's like walking into a museum in a way. And, and I've had clients cry. Yeah, yeah. I've had clients cry when they walk in and I don't hear from them for two weeks on priest. We didn't have a cell service, but my husband and I cried because we loved it so much. I'm like, oh, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But also, and lighting pattern. I, I often pick fixtures and specifically see what kind of pattern they're going to push out. Some of the light fixtures actually shove out this almost broken, shattered glass feel. So I want to see if I can add interest to what could be a boring corridor or a boring foyer or a boring spot that just kind of like, eh, it's okay. But then you get this light pattern, just go, whoa, that is so cool. So you get the cool factor with lighting as well. Mm. And budget, I mean, nowadays you have to be careful because some of the American made crafted is getting so expensive. So you have to be careful on how your budget is sitting with that lighting. Because now in the upper end, the Hammertons, the Hubberton Forges, they're they're shocking me even, the price tags. But, um, you know, uh, kudos, buy American if we can, but you have to use it sparingly. It's mm. just to not kill a budget. Right. So cool. So, you know, some of the other things I think that we talked about just to kind of wrap up was uh, mm -hmm. planning for how you're going to use the home. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, one thing you, you mentioned was this was, I think your exact words, there's no hidey holes in logs. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no, there aren't no, so niches, planning no. How, you know, where's your entertainment system going to go or how are you going to, yeah. or how might you grow with your house or change it down the road? Because what if one day your, your TV system's here, but you decide, oh, I think I'm going to put it over here on this other wall. And that just can't happen in a log home unless maybe you're thinking of that in advance. So tell me a little bit about kind of planning of ahead. Yeah. Planning ahead for it. There's two planning aheads, certainly for audio video. And now with the beauty of, you know, wireless and um, also home runs and being able to do raceways and um, planning for flexibility. And we, do work with our AV guys pretty closely on working with planning for the chance that, oh, the TV wants to be there, but we might put it over there. So we plan ahead for that. And I do a lot of that with the clients. Well, what if we move the bed over here? What happens to that TV? So I'm not a big bed TV person. I think they don't belong together, but that's just beside me. Um, but I, I don't advocate if they really want a TV in their bedroom, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, clean sleep is always good. Um, but also having that home run audio video uh, landing spot that serves the entire house. Um, if that's a real big passion of theirs. Um, I also sound and audio, audio and sound in a log home can be different. It, it takes sound differently and sometimes for the good and sometimes not. I have some, you know, concert pianist people who, you know, will put the, their piano in a certain place so it has better audio 
in the in the actual space. So we have to consider all those things. Um, but as far as planning ahead for change, we also have to think more and more. A lot of our clientele, yours and mine, are aging. They're aging and they're doing their dream home at 50, but they're also going to be aging in that house. So we have to look forward to, um, you know, either sound, uh, sight issues, disability issues, um, you know, all those things of lighting levels. You know, as we get older, we need more light. So we have to be able to put our systems on, on dimmers somehow. Um, and maybe they're not app people. I mean, some of my clients don't like to live off their phone. And we got poor cell coverage in a lot of the homes in the northern areas in Bonners and in, certainly in Coeur d'Alene even. We just don't get cell service. So you can't live off your phone um, all the time. So we have to have alternative systems that work within the constraints of living in North Idaho. Um, so that's another thing that out-of-towners don't get. I mean, we have to introduce them to all these, what? You mean, you, you mean I can't dial up right there standing, you know, I can't open my garage from three three miles away. No, you can't. <laughs> we don't have cell service. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. Yesterday, I was talking to somebody who moved here from Alaska, no less. Yes. And yes. I said, well, what brought you here? And how was it? We, we were talking all about it. She said, you know, the biggest thing has been when I was in Alaska, I could be fishing in the sound and still get Wi-Fi. Good luck. Yeah, said it was yeah. great. It was like she could be fishing out there and hanging out and watching Facebook, watching YouTube. Here, she said, I'm constantly like, where's my cell service? And I'm right here in the city. You know, it's hilarious. Yeah, no. I kind of like it. Honestly, my personal preference, I don't like being around all the cell towers. So I'm happy. I'm a happy camper. <laughs> no, and all the priest folks, they love just going off the cell for two weeks. It's mental relaxation. Yeah. So a lot of them are proud of it. They're proud of it. No, we're not improving our cell service up here. Hell no, we're good. Amen. <laughs> so, I love it. <laughs> just don't count on 911. Just throw them in the car and drive. So yeah. yeah. But so it's planning ahead, knowing all those systems have to be allowed for and integrated from the get-go in the planning stages so that you can age in place. You maybe can have curbless showers where you can roll into a shower. I had a client break an ankle last month and she says, oh, I'm so glad we have that walk-in shower. You know, I can waddle in there and sit down on the steps. So all those things should be upfront and on the table instead of, you know, let's just build it in so you don't have to worry about it in times ahead. Um, let's make sure we have backing in the wall where we don't have logs to screw into for a grab bar, you know, um, all those things. So planning ahead. And I think that's what an interior designer and an architect and an engineer should do professionally is mesh all that up front so that there's no surprises. I, I hate it when a client is shocked and says, well, that's not what I wanted. Um, that's uh, that we're, we failed. So I want to make sure that as a team and the builder, um, as a team, you're not failing that client and that they are as delighted at the beginning as they were at the end. That, that's the whole package. So. Oh, lovely. Well, I think that was just such a wrap, a good wrap up for, for what we're doing with this whole design, this whole, uh, I guess, mini series on design. This has been just, just beautiful. I love hearing everything you're talking about. And I hope that our listeners are listening to this and thinking about this because to me, does interior designers is kind of the unheard of person mm -hmm. when it comes to building a house, you know, everybody right. knows they need a contractor. Everybody knows, well, obviously if you're building a log home, you need a log contractor. You know, <laughs> everybody kind of thinks about an architect, especially on a certain level scale, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to think of an architect, but an interior designer is somebody they either may not even know exists or understand. So I'm so grateful for your time and thank you for sharing. 
No problem. Thank you. Appreciate your time.